0: And we also take your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Last month, I believe May 17th actually, was the 65th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. That was the Supreme Court ruling that uh, said that s- separate but equal schools were not equal at all and uh, mandated uh, overturned uh, segregation laws across the country. But, however, uh, schools now are more segregated in the United States than at any time since the 1960s. Uh, if you, there was a map in the... Pittsburgh Business Times uh, recently, which showed um, a map of the lower-performing schools in the Pittsburgh area, and it mapped almost exactly to areas which were poor, and that mapped almost exactly in the Pittsburgh area to areas areas which are uh, heavily uh, African-American and people of color. There is an exhibit right now at the August Wilson African-American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh, which is examining uh, this phenomenon and um, challenging people, I think, to do something about it and to respond to it. It's called Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal, and it is an an exhibit that specifically includes items from the Woodland Hills School District uh, in our listening area. One of the curators is on the phone with us this morning. She is Katie Fuller, and she's joining us from New York. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you uh, so much. This exhibition, uh, which is at the August Wilson Center through July 21st, this is traveling around the country, correct?
1: It has been, yes. Uh, As of our conversation, at August Wilson Center, is the final location. Okay. So it's been traveling for the past two years.
0: Uh, and, and give a little bit of uh, give a shout out to your co curator. Uh, what is his name?
1: Larry Osei-Mensa. Okay. Yes, Larry has been incredible.
0: Uh, Katie, this is also one of a series of uh, exhibits you've done on race and revolution, correct? Yes.
1: Yes. This is uh, so. Still separate, still unequal was the second. Um, I'm actually in the process of deinstalling the third show, which is in Brooklyn, uh, called Reimagining Monuments.
0: And you have a website. Can you tell people what your website is?
1: Uh, it's race and revolution, uh, racerevolution.org. And uh, on the homepage, there'll be information about reimagining monuments, and then there's a section on past exhibitions where you can find information about Still Separate, Still Unequal.
0: Talk to me about what people will see uh, when they go to see uh, race and revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal, uh, at the August Wilson Center, now through July 21st. Is, is it photography? Is it sculpture? Is it uh, painting? What is it?
1: It is all of the above. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's 17 artists, uh, Larry and I, for the original iteration, which opened in uh, at the MacMellan Gallery in Brooklyn in 2016. Nope,
2: 2017.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, we did an, what's called an open call. So through the gallery, uh, we created a submission process. And so when receiving the proposals, we selected uh, 18 artists and uh, 17, that number has not done all of the traveling. Uh, it's kind of depended on the size and the space of, and the budget of each location. Um, so August Wilson Centers is the largest of the exhibition since it left Mellon in 2017.
0: What does the the name Race and Revolution, how is that tied to the American Revolution?
1: So my first exhibition was in a space in New York City called Governor's Island, mm-hmm. which um, throughout its history, after the Lenape, uh, you know, after the land was taken, mm-hmm. uh, the British, so the Dutch, I, the Dutch, it was more of a recreation space, but when the British uh, colonized the area, uh, it was a um, used for military, and I believe actually one of the governors during uh, British colonization uh, used it as his private hunting ground. Mm-hmm. But uh, for the most part, historically, it was a military base. Um, there's still a fort. There's actually two, one from the Civil War and one from the American Revolution. And so because I actually planned the topic after I knew I was going to have this space, So um, Mm -hmm. that first first exhibition looked at the impact of colonialism and also the making of racist American ideologies during the American Revolution.
0: But what did you find about sort of racist attitudes or tropes that emerged during the American Revolution?
1: One of the most... So for each of the exhibitions, I include excerpts from historical documents. And the idea behind race and revolution is that we are confronting the past and then Mm -hmm. using the contemporary artwork to show how we're... Stuck in these uh, trauma cycles around uh, systemic racism, so um, I think our current president makes it clear that we are still profoundly dealing with these issues. Um, so I, I am hoping that through these the experiences of these exhibitions, people see the, the words like literally written on the wall mm-hmm. uh, through these historical documents about the the the, the making of uh, racism. Um, so that exhibition, one of the most compelling pieces that really uh, surprised to people was a um, an order, a military order from George Washington to a, a man named uh, Major General John Sullivan, mm-hmm. and he ordered, John Sullivan was um, uh, creating a path from New York to Ohio, and Washington's orders were to decimate any sign of Native settlement, any humans, any profitable lands, um, to just destroy it. So, you know, it's an act of genocide, as, as John, uh, Major General John Sullivan is, is crossing this path. Um, and it's so over. You can't then have a conversation about how wonderful a human being Washington is. I mean, yes, he may have been a great military leader, but I, you know, we're, it's the humans who invented racism and <laughs> it's the humans who invented race. So that's kind of what I'm looking
0: at. So, one of the things I'm hearing then is that it's not just race of white versus black you're you're also exploring race of white versus native populations
1: so when I initially was uh, thinking around uh, what race and revolution was going to be my first I should clarify that my backgrounds in education
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: I, I worked in uh, museum education for six and a half years at a history museum okay and that was I, I have zero background in curating and So it was rather bold of me to say to myself, well, I'm going to curate an art show. Um, Mm -hmm. But the idea for me was that, um, for for Race and Revolution, was that we learned these, we as contemporary society learned these oppressive systems because they happened from day one of Europeans' landing on this this side of the globe. Um, And it obviously started with Native populations, and then trickled into uh, slavery, but it really started in Europe. So Mm -hmm. people already came here with these ideas of uh, imperialism and uh, supremacy. So, uh, but yes, so for Race and Revolution, the the first exhibition, uh, it did focus primarily on Native uh, involvement in the American Revolution and then African and African American involvement in the American Revolution, how... Both of those groups were manipulated by promises of land, by promises of freedom, uh, in order to join the uh, whichever force they wound up joining, so whether it was the British or the uh,
2: Continental Army. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's pause right there uh, to take a 30-second break. When we come back, Katie, I want to uh, ask you how you went through the process of selecting uh, the items that are being exhibited, and also— okay. Uh, what the narrative, uh, what you've learned and what the narrative is, okay? Thank you. Katie Fuller is on the line with us. uh, Along with uh, Larry Ose-Mensa, she has curated an exhibit called Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. Right now, it is at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh through July 21st. You are listening to Two Rivers, 30 Minutes, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation in downtown McKeesport. We'll be right back. You're listening to Two Rivers, 30 Minutes, a production of Tube City Community Media, Incorporated. If you've got an idea for someone who you'd like us to interview or a question or comment, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Tube City Online. Welcome back. Our guest this morning is Katie Fuller. She is the co-curator of Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. It's at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh. Now through July 21st, it looks at segregation and racial and economic disparity in the United States public school system. For more information, you can go to the August Wilson Center's website, aacc-awc.org. The August Wilson Center is, I believe, the sixth venue now that has uh, hosted this exhibition, uh, which is wrapping up uh, July 21st. Uh, Katie, when we took the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the roots of these um, racial attitudes in the United States, which which came over from uh, Europe as Europe was colonizing uh, North America. How in particular, since this particular exhibit focuses on education, how did it affect the, the establishment of public school systems in the United States?
1: Well, I mean, public school education was designed for white children. And once the demographic started shifting, there had to be some sort of Place You know, I mean, it's against the law for children under 16 to not be in school.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so there had to be some place for children to go. Um, so I... I um,
0: but pre-civil, I, pre-Civil War era in this country, aren't there some places where it was illegal for black children yes. to be educated?
1: Or I mean, children were... Um, black children were being educated, obviously. Um, they were...
0: In the home. ...educated
1: yeah. Sub- sub- yeah, subversively. Yeah. Um, and also in other parts of the country, but... Um, but yeah, there was no no place for them to actually study together as a community until after the Civil War.
0: But, but the community the the, the the community idea of, of a public school, which I guess really Horace Mann often gets uh, credit for the you know the idea of free uh, public free universal public education for all children. Um, but we think of the little red schoolhouse or, or the uh-huh. log cabin school that maybe we we. In our mind is from little house on the prairie or something <laughs> all right um yeah, that this, was, kind of
1: romantic, this romantic idea this romantic
0: colonial idea like. of what a public school looked like in the 19th century is a romantic white yeah. ideal it is not yeah. what black as children was were Horace experiencing
1: Man's, yeah that's what's horseman's mission
0: right you, you, you mentioned black children obviously are being educated by their families or being educated subversively yeah. uh when do parallel school systems start to evolve i
1: mean post Reconstruction okay. or during Reconstruction. So okay. Reconstruction ended in
0: 1877,
1: so okay. um, a, a, you know, a little before that, when, when, when the Union Army was in the South and they were really solidifying, uh, they, um, you know, there was a, a group of people called the Freemans Borough, and they were actually instituting all of these new uh, programs that would be more equitable, so it would be during that time.
0: So, so they set up black schools, but it's kind of over the objection of the white power structure... Yes. In the South, and once the Union Army you know, Reconstruction was really sort of widely derided in the South, and once the Union Army pulls out, then the the, the black school systems what just sort of limp along?
1: Yeah, I mean there there you know there's no money set aside, so communities are raising money for the schools internally, uh-huh. and um, you know and then in 1896 when uh, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson. Was decided uh, mm-hmm. that to rule separate but equal, then it became a countrywide thing. Even though it was supposed to only be in the South, but this is so called. This is the so called. I'm sorry
0: to interrupt you. This is the so called Jim Crow laws, which yeah. set up se- separate uh, accommodations for white citizens and black citizens. Yes. Okay. Um, We're talking with Katie Fuller, along with uh, Larry Ose-Mensa. She's uh, a co-curator of Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. It is at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh, now through July 21st. Uh, For more information, aacc-awc.org. And and I I don't want to pile this all on the South, because what happens in the 1890s, uh, in the in the early part of the 20th century, then, is this big industrial revolution that happens in the North in places like Pittsburgh, McKeesport, Youngstown, Detroit, Cleveland, where factories are being set up, and there is this migration from the South of poor people, white and black, who come north looking for work. Um, and I have a feeling that in many places in the North, this is the first time that there is an influx of free Black citizens uh, to these communities. What happens then? Are they? <laughs> spoiler alert! Right? Are, are, are they welcomed into the public school system or no? What happens in a place such as Pittsburgh or New York City?
1: Well, let me let me start here. Yeah. Uh, as of today, uh, New York City has the most segregated school system in the entire country. So you're right, this is not a a north-south issue, this is a national issue. Um, And so we have, uh, there's all of these different modalities. When the courts rule against and say, okay, we can no longer have these segregated schools, and even before that, as you're you're implying with the Great Migration, um, there's always been tactics that white people have used to create these separate, you know, these segregated Situation. So, real estate—that yep. was that was the big one um, during that time.
0: There's um, a tactic called redlining, where redlining, basically yeah. na- certain neighborhoods are just not shown. If you're a black yep. person and you are looking to buy a house, you're just not shown that neighborhood.
1: Yep, and mortgages are not are not granted. Have,
0: have, as, as this exhibition, race and revolution, still separate, still unequal, has traveled—is uh, it mostly been on the East Coast? Yes. Have you? Uh, yeah.
1: Pittsburgh is as far west as it's gone.
0: Okay, uh, well, we we are the gateway to the west, right? at least in the American Revolutionary times. Um, yes. As, as this has traveled around the east, then have, have you tailored it? You and you and Larry Osameense have tailored it to each community.
2: Uh,
1: yes. Yeah. So, in the initial iteration of it, when it was in Brooklyn, um, I, I looked at uh, school segregation on a national level, and once again, it was part of that was to prove that this isn't a north south thing. That mm-hmm. this is these are. This is, you know, language from the government. It's language from, uh, you know, states in the north. It's language from states in the south. Mm-hmm. But yes, um, as the show moved, um, it, it, I started to work with uh, researchers and uh, one lawyer mm-hmm. uh, to f- figure out. So there, there's a. It's an extensive process, um, and I have to thank uh, the people at UConn for opening up this. The depth in which the show could take by having it focus on the state in which the show is. Um, we worked specifically with an organization called the Chef Movement. There's a famous court case that was uh, decided in 1996 called Chef versus O'Neill. Mm-hmm. And it was um, uh, Milo Chef was at the time in third grade and they were using, in, in Hartford, and they were using um, uh, Milo Chef and I think there was eight other families. It might have been more actually, uh, to... Um, to argue against what's called de facto segregation in Hartford. And de facto segregation is things like redlining, that, you know, it's not, um, you can't argue that these schools are legally segregated, but you can show that the school systems, the wider systems like white flight, Mm -hmm. um, property taxes, and their contribution to the schools, that those things are all set up to, to make schools for children of color or for children in low socioeconomic communities um, to to be less prepared for
0: success. We have to take a second, 30-second uh, break. When we come back, I want to ask you how this exhibit at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center includes some information from the Woodland Hills School District in our area and uh, what you've learned and what you've heard from some of the people in the Pittsburgh area who have viewed this exhibit, okay? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Katie Fuller is one of the curators of Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. It is at the uh, August Wilson African American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh now through July 21st. AACC-AWC.org is the website for the August Wilson Center. You can also call them at 412-339-1011. Broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation here in downtown McKeesport, this is Two Rivers 30 Minutes on Radio 81 WEDO, 1550 and 101.1 WZUM, the Pittsburgh Jazz Channel, Internet Radio, WMCK.FM, and TubeCityOnline.com. Stay tuned. We'll be back in 30 seconds to wrap things up. You're listening to Two Rivers 30 Minutes, a production of Tube City Community Media Incorporated. You know, we're looking for help in getting this show on the air and for help with other projects. If you're interested in the Sport area and you'd like to host a program or write articles for the website, call us at 412-614-9659 or email TubeCityTiger at gmail.com. Welcome back. Our guest this morning is Katie Fuller along with Larry Ose Mensa. She's one of the curators of Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. It is at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center in downtown Pittsburgh now through July 21st, 412-339-1011. It is an exhibition which examines the ongoing racial and economic disparities in America's public school systems. Uh, When we took the break, Katie, I mentioned that, that in Pittsburgh we've heard a lot of talk of neighborhood schools, which brings to mind for me the uh, busing controversy that was yep. in, in Boston in the 1970s, which very much was uh, along racial lines of, of white students being bused to schools in predominantly black neighborhoods and black students being bused to schools in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, that issue was in the news again here recently, 40-some years later, because uh, former Vice President Joe Biden... Um, uh, was, was talking about his, was it his good friend, is that how he phrased it, uh, former U.S. Senator Herman Talmadge, um, who was a notorious segregationist senator in the South. And, and one of the pieces of legislation I believe that Biden worked on was uh, trying to block school, mandatory school busing. But what is your emotion when these same issues that were being debated in the 1970s, the 60s, the 50s are, are coming around today here in, in 2019?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, yeah, the Boston busing crisis, uh, I, I went to school in Boston, and I lived there for six years, but I didn't learn about the Boston busing crisis until until I started doing research
2: okay.
0: for this
1: exhibition, which to me, that's part of the problem. Um,
2: it's
0: just know, not that, taught.
1: That we're not learning these things, that we just assume, uh, you know, I mean, the, the common belief still here in, in New York, especially where, you know, once again, where it's the most segregated school system in the country, People are still asking, wait, what? what, Why are we still having this conversation? Um, And it's because we've all learned in school that 1954, this court decision made it illegal to segregate schools, and so everything's great now.
0: I brought up the the concept of neighborhood schools, and you were telling me off the air that that's not something that you that's not a term that you specifically had heard, but it has been a term used here in Pittsburgh that well, children should not be bused anywhere; they should just be able to walk to their school. Um, we, we've heard that uh, not just in the the city of Pittsburgh public school system, but in some of the surrounding school systems. And and oftentimes, what I hear then from activists in the community is, well, that's coded language for children should stay in their own neighborhoods, which is then-coded language for, children should say, segregated by race. Um, I, I, and, and that leads me to ask you, then, what you and uh, Larry Ose-Mensa, your, your co-curator, learned about segregation in the in the Pittsburgh uh, area public schools.
1: Yeah, we, we did focus the research on uh, one school specific to Pittsburgh, which is Woodland Hills.
0: Uh-huh, That's, yeah, which and, is where one of our radio stations is, yeah. Okay,
1: okay. So uh, I can speak more to that. But um, Please. once again, with the, the issue with the neighborhood schools and I mean, one reason segregated schools initially were considered so bad is because children had to a lot of children of color had to walk by the white school to, in order to get to, to their school.
0: And the materials were not as good. The materials Correct. were not as new. They yeah. were not as plentiful. The classrooms were not as good. The, the, in some cases, the teachers that were being hired were not as good.
1: Talking about children being able to walk to their school, that's not a bad thing. But then, once again, with de facto segregation, we have to look at the way property taxes are divided. We have to look at the way we segregate in communities.
0: Talk to me about what you learned about the Woodland Hills uh, School District, which was created by a federal court ruling um, that forced uh, some very, three, I believe it was three very segregated. School districts to yeah. merge into one. And I believe, and I don't, hopefully, I'm not offending any of the listeners by saying there are still tensions in their, those yeah. communities 30 some years later uh, over that merger.
1: Well, I, I, you shouldn't be offending anybody because that's a fact. And, you know, it's the, the offense comes with whether or not people want to see that as a fact. But, you know, the, considering that the recent court case of uh, 2017 mm-hmm. when five families sued the school because of violence in the school, that mm-hmm. was being Initiated by the so-called uh, school resource officers, um, that's that's all very real, and that that was so. This researcher who I worked with um, from Penn State. So at Penn State, they have the um, Center of Education in Civil Rights, and they actually hosted a um, an education conference called Brown at Sixty Five, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, I attended that conference. It was, um, but what I learned from the researcher at Penn State, you know, who, he was the one who pointed me in the direction of uh, Woodland Hills. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who told me about Antoine Rose. Mm-hmm. And I think that children, these are little, you know, these are kids. And they're growing up to be afraid of police officers because they're being assaulted by them in school. My, I do not feel comfortable really trying to get at the nitty-gritty because I'm not in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I'm not from Pennsylvania. Um, and I think that I really need to respect the fact that I'm an outsider. And it's not that it's not my place, mm-hmm. um, but, but this is, it's not something that I have spent enough time on to truly understand all of the nuances. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if police are committing acts of violence in schools, there obviously, needs to be some changes. I mean, I, there, underscore underscore. I know my my yeah. tone sounds light, but I mean, there, it's just so plain as day. Uh, so that's that's my, my what I know of Woodland Hills. It's really that about this court case and about Antoine Rose thinking about how he ran from police because he was afraid of police.
0: What uh, Antoine Rose, of course, being the uh, teenager who was shot uh, in yeah. East Pittsburgh. Um, by a, a police officer who was then acquitted of uh, criminal charges. The August Wilson Center uh, at Race and Revolution, still separate, still unequal. What uh, artifacts from Pennsylvania uh, or from the Pittsburgh area will uh, people see?
1: So they will see, uh, when they walk into the, the gallery on the ground floor, which is where the exhibition mm-hmm. begins, uh, on the left wall is an art piece called De Facto De Facto. And uh, that was done by a Pittsburgh artist. Um, and right next to it is text from that court case in Woodland Hills from 2017. And then when they go around the corner to—I'm sorry, the artist's name is Michael Battles. Mm-hmm.
2: I should have mentioned yeah. that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, when they go around the corner to their uh, immediate right is a uh, an artist uh, named Latika from the Braddock Library. Mm-hmm. Created, once again, through the, the researcher at Penn State, um, he showed me, he sent me the poem that I believe is quite well known at this point by Antoine Rose. Yeah. Uh, he wrote it in 10th grade. It's called I Am Not What You Think. And initially, when the show was at Penn State, which it was there before it went to Pittsburgh, um, I had the, the poem printed out and placed on the wall like like regular gallery text. And what uh, Kilolo Luckett, who was the, the curator at, August Wilson Center wanted to do what she wanted to turn that poem into an art piece to integrate that piece into the show. And so uh, this artist Latika from the radical library created a print of the poem. And uh, so it's on the wall, like I said, to your immediate right when you walk into the gallery space and um, uh, during the opening, Mm -hmm. which was on May 15th, Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: Antoine Rose's mother, sister, and niece attended. And, uh, they, you know, they, I, I don't know, I can't imagine what they've been going through. Um, you know, what it was June 19th, which yeah. is also the holiday. Juneteenth is a yeah. celebration of uh, the emancipation of slavery. Um, was the one year anniversary of the shooting of Antoine Rose. So, you know, this is we're coming up right on his one year anniversary when the show opened and they they saw. I just hope that they felt that we did right by his work, by his poem, um, and that we were honoring his legacy and that we were not exploiting the tragedy. Um, But to me, it was an incredible, incredible honor to have them there.
0: This may be an unfair question to ask you, but um, w- what is some of the reaction that you've gotten from from people in Pittsburgh at that uh, opening reception at the August Wilson Center?
1: It, you know, the, I think the show is is doing its job. I think yeah. it's raising awareness. I think it's offering people some relief who who have not felt seen in these conversations. Um, and because you know, we've gotten to work with these incredible artists, who I didn't mention this earlier, but most of the artists we wound up uh, inviting to be in the show are actually teachers themselves. Huh. So. Once again, like the pieces, you can tell like there's this, um, this profound connection that the artist
0: has with the content. You've got about a month uh, left to see it on display at the August Wilson African American Cultural Center. It's called Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. It's an exploration of racial and economic disparity in the American public school system. Uh, public schools in the United States are more segregated now than they uh, have been uh, at almost any time uh, since the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, our guest this morning has been Katie Fuller. She is the co-curator along with Larry Ose-Menson. Uh, of that exhibition. She joined us from New York. Katie, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us this morning.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation.
0: And thank you all for listening today to Radio 81 WEDO, 1550 and 101.1 WZUM, the Pittsburgh Jazz Channel, Internet Radio WMCK and TubeCityOnline.com, broadcasting from the Tube City Center for Business and Innovation here in downtown McKeesport. So long for now.